Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten, conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We are your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. Before we get into our pilot episode, or perhaps better said, a cornerstone launching episode, uh, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves. My name is Stanton Skurjanic. I am a teacher here in Fort Collins, Colorado. I teach economics and government. And when I'm not discussing the intricacies of liberty and freedom, I like to enjoy moments of Star Wars, golf, and vexillology. Bonus points if you know what that is. Now I'm going to hand it off to the co-host with the most, Miss Christy. Hey, thanks all for tuning in today. My name is Christy Burton-Brown. I'm probably most known as the vice chair of the Colorado Republican Party. But thankfully, politics does not eat up all of my life. I am also a mom of two kids, a suburban mom, one of those who actually happens to be conservative, uh, also a constitutional lawyer. And my favorite pastime is making up new recipes and gardening. You should have seen the size of the zucchini that just came out of my garden this year. It is amazing. Cody, let's hear from you. Of course. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I am Cody Wisniewski. I am a constitutional attorney that works for a nonprofit in just outside of Denver and focusing specifically on founding era and originalist interpretations of the Constitution and mostly Second Amendment and gun rights law. But uh, in addition to shooting, which I think is a requirement for all Second Amendment attorneys, I spend a lot of my free time uh, doing Muay Thai and picking up way too many hobbies that are good for me. So uh, <laughs> within six months, there'll be a full new set that will have come in and, and become mainstays in my daily life. <laughs> Perfect. So two lawyers and a teacher. I don't know how this is going to work. I, 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 I feel like the lawyers are going to have just a fun time arguing circles around me. And I'm just going to be there just like prodding with the Socrates. Okay, so what? In the words of the great <laughs> moral philosopher, Dick Cheney, so what? So what? <laughs> Then again, you, you do know what to do with kids. So, you know, you may know how, know how to push us along. That's true. That said, my kids are often a captive audience. I got I to gotta actually like convince you. I got to enjoy <laughs> this time with you. Uh, in any show on freedom, on liberty, on the rights of man, it's beneficial. It's proper. It's necessary that I think we start with a conversation on the Declaration of Independence, 1776, by Thomas Jefferson and an assortment of other men. Uh, Christy, what's so important about the Declaration? Why does it matter today? Well, that is a loaded question, um, which Cody should appreciate. I think it's come back into the discussion today because a lot of people wonder if it should be canceled. Um, does the Declaration of Independence matter anymore? There's just so many questions surrounding it. And, and I think 
as a lawyer who focuses on the Constitution, that one error constitutional lawyers and people in general make is to forget about the Declaration. And in reality, it was the first founding document of those people that started our nation. So I think that at its core is why it actually matters today and should inform any national discussion we have on freedom or really anything. Do we cancel the declaration? What does that even mean? What would it even look like to cancel the declaration? I have, I don't even know what that would mean. Like we understand what cancel culture is right now. People, people, it doesn't have an influence. We don't want to hear about them, but how do you not hear about the declaration? What would that even look like? Well, so in a sense, we kind of have canceled the declaration a little bit. Um, obviously it goes to inform a lot of the later political documents. Um, obviously the constitution was creating a government that respected or was supposed to respect the principles in the declaration. But technically in courts, at least, uh, the declaration is not binding authority that a court has to rule based on. Um, that was decided recently. Ooh, Justice Scalia, I believe. No. Uh, has that an opinion Scalia? early on in his career. Yeah, Scalia was not the uh, constitutional originalist that we all necessarily thought towards the end of his career. He also made a lot of shifts throughout his lifetime on the court. But, um, I, you know, he, he thought it was a very important protest document. And it was a political move at the time and nothing more. So it already kind of is canceled a little bit in courts in that sense. Yeah. And you know what I, what I find to be interesting, because I think Cody's totally right, that a lot of courts will just dismiss the declaration as we'll get past that. Let's talk about the Constitution, because it's easier for them to kind of twist that, I mean, honestly, into their own interpretation. But who I'm actually really interested in on the court is um, Neil Gorsuch. He, in one of his books he wrote before he got on the court, it's uh, really positive title called The Future of Assisted Su Suicide and Euthanasia. Mm. Uh, but you know, if you can get with the title. He actually goes into what does equality mean in America? And to define human equality, he throws back to the Declaration of Independence and treats it as, uh, I mean, the important document it really is. So his theories on the court will be uh, very interesting, I think. You know, when, when, when you guys are talking about, you know, how the courts don't really hold it as anything kind of enforceable that I always remember that um, when I'm discussing the preamble with my students, the preamble to the constitution, that literally the, you know, it, even if the declaration was one stat one, the constitution is literally law. It is the supreme law. And yet there's a whole little chunk of it, the preamble that has no legal binding, so to speak. And you no, know, for being the law, it doesn't have any legal binding effect. And that always, that always baffled me because I guess when we think about the constitution, we always think about it as taking the principles, the ideas, the ideals of the declaration and actually putting them into effect, making some sort of structure that guarantees the promises made by the declaration. And that preamble seems to be exactly the kind of mission statement we all so desperately need. What's the purpose of the United States? What's our destiny? What should we be doing? I'm like, guys, there's, there's a whole six purposes, six things outlined in the preamble. But then again, no one really would really care about the preamble if they didn't care about the declaration. So it all just comes back to that protest document, as Scalia, I guess, would call it. Man, he really just called it a protest document? How sad. He, he expressed reverence for it uh, as a very important political move. 
and pretty much limited it to that. I guess in, uh, in legal parlance, we might call it dicta. So it, it's an <laughs> yeah. interesting highlight in our history, but you're not going to make any decisions based on it, which is, is sad when you dig into the text of the declaration and really look at not only why they were writing that document, why they were separating from the king, but their specific basis for that separation, as well as their grievances with the king, which I think are oddly interesting today. Uh, Many of them are becoming more and more relevant in our modern society. And obviously the under the underlying theory of the document is always important, but especially so today when we're talking about equality and human rights. I mean, that kind of idea of human rights, Chrissy, you sent us something from the State Department, the Commission on something and something. Can you explain that to us a little bit? I, I read it and I was just like, man, this is really fascinating. We should talk about this, but I think, I think you might have a better handle on this being being one of our foremost lawyers on this podcast. <laughs> the foremost. <laughs> the, for, the foremost, certainly. certainly. Oh, I don't know about that, but hey, it is actually a really interesting document. Um, there was a commission on unalienable rights uh, that was <laughs> kind of a, definitely a throwback to founding, founding words. That's not a conversation you hear a lot today. What, does, what do natural rights mean? What are unalienable rights? A word I can barely say. But nonetheless, <laughs> it's extremely important. And this entire document, pages upon pages, people took months to study the foundations of our, of our nation. What does the Declaration of Independence mean? The Constitution, how are they interrelated with the fight for human rights today on many different levels? Certainly with the current conversation, they took a take on racism and human rights in relation to that, but they also kind of admitted throughout the document that there's so many human rights issues that come up around the globe. And what should America's stance be in addressing human rights violations, whether they be in our nation, whether they be in China, in Iran, uh, some of the worst human rights violators in the world, and how should that inform our action, both at the UN or just in international agreements? I mean, I don't know if either of you got a chance to read it at all, but I I think there were a a lot of parts that were just really interesting in the throwback to the reason America has the power and the standing in the world we do is because we're one of the few nations on earth that actually originated with the proper understanding of unalienable rights that belong to us by virtue of being human, not because a government granted them to us. I, I, I really appreciate how the document, um, the, the commission's report referred back to, what's it called? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the UN's Mm-hmm. charter on human rights, essentially, and just how closely connected they were. And Cody, I know you, you know, you being the, the, the particular ideologue that you are, that you are <laughs> really passionate about this idea of, uh, of natural rights. What, now, without going into a, a philosophy 101 course, what are natural rights and how did our founding fathers understand it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we are pretty much the only nation that was founded on a strong philosophical concept in that sense. I mean, not going too far back, but our founders understood that, you know, men had a predilection towards society and society means government. So there was going to be some form of government amongst the people, but they tied it very specifically to this idea of unalienable rights, which is my favorite turn of phrase in the Declaration of Independence. 
And what unalienable means is that they, they can't be divorced from your humanity. It, it doesn't mean that you can't have them infringed. It doesn't mean that you can't necessarily contract them away. You could make an agreement to, to temporarily suspend your rights or to temporarily you know, allow someone else to exercise your rights for you. Unalienable means as a human being, you have certain rights. Um, now, the founders and framers, importantly in the next few words said, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So those are the easy ones to start with, right? You have the natural right to your own life. They also believed that inherent in that was the natural right to defend your own life. You know, liberty is your general exercise of your being without infringement from another person. Pursuit of happiness is always an interesting turn of phrase, but uh, you know, it's some people have said it's the only thing pursued to its own end. Um, <laughs> in the original Lockean philosophy, it was life, liberty, and property, which some people argue maybe would have been a better word there. But that's the, the entire foundation of our country is that as a human being, you have certain natural rights, unalienable rights. And the sole role of government is to protect those rights and to help respond to infringements of those rights from other humans. And that is the basis of creating the constitutional form of government and, and founding our republic was a recognition and deep respect for individual, natural, unalienable rights. Something I, I, I've always found fascinating about the idea of the naturalized life, liberty, uh, property, or pursuit of happiness, kind of the triumvirate of natural, natural law. Um, this idea that you could almost conceive of all rights within those three, particularly like within the idea of liberty, right? If I have the right to liberty, I don't have the right to just to move around and say what I want. I have the right to make contracts with, with whomever I want. I have the right to own and sell and buy property. I have the right to a whole slew of things. And you know, I can't remember who, who said it or what the exact phrase of the adage, but it's the idea that liberty is both the most necessary and dangerous idea. It's James Madison. It's James Madison, Federalist 51. He said, liberty is what gives breath. It gives life to dangerous faction, but it's also the essential ingredient to a flourishing society, like how oxygen is to fire, but oxygen is also to just organic life in general. And this idea that the, the natural rights kind of encompass everything. I've always understood these rights to be quote unquote, negative rights, not negative as in like a bad connotation, but negative as in it's a prohibition against doing something. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, so there's a clear distinction between natural rights and positive rights. And in the negative rights sense, basically what you're talking about there is it would be a prohibition on either government or another person from infringing upon your ability to exercise your rights, your liberty, your freedom. Now, founders understood that there was also a difference between positive rights, and this would be a good uh, comparison to kind of what you're getting at. And something in the legal term that, that we throw around a lot and a lot of people will know what we're talking about is due process. So you're required to have a certain amount of process, whatever that means in the context, before government can do something, before somebody else can infringe on your rights. That is a positive right. There's no such thing as process in natural law. By creating a government, we have put into place protections on rights, and that's what created the process. So 
you don't have a natural right to due process because it doesn't exist in nature. You can only have process with government. So the founders and framers understood this and the government that they created is a system of checks on the natural rights as well as kind of the creation of certain positive rights. Yeah, no, and I think that's really true. I think the creation of the process rights was almost a way to make sure that government didn't infringe on those natural rights because it's one thing to proclaim and say, oh, everyone in our nation has them. And it's a far, uh, it's another bridge in the right direction to say, and here exactly is how government will be responsible and accountable to you to make sure we uphold those rights. Exactly. And they thought this was a self-evident system, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, hearkening back to our name. But I think what's interesting there too is that initially read, um, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. And there's some disagreement on why there was a change. Some people attribute that change to Benjamin Franklin telling Jefferson, hey, look, we don't want this to be about sacred. That's not a good buzzword for us. Self-evident is a better buzzword for us. Uh, Ever the marketers uh, they were, but they undeniable, self-evident. They thought that this was just truly exposed by nature of, of being a human and that the chief role of government was to protect that and create processes to protect that. And that's kind of a point that the, the commission's report made of, of self-evident that it, being intrinsic to human nature, it doesn't, it, 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 it is regardless of the culture, the, uh, the background you come from, you have these natural rights to, to live, to own property, to, uh, to be free to do what you want with that property. The question then, and this is something I think the United Nations struggles with a lot, but it's part of their kind of core mission is understanding how do we take natural rights, this idea universal to all humanity, and implement them via positive law through 180 different countries? Like, what does that even look like? And you know, this is where the State Department's report talks about um, you know, our mission, foreign policy, trying to respect national sovereignty, but also understanding that there's limits, you know, the red line when it comes to atrocities against one nation's own citizens. But kind of tying this all back, this idea of natural rights being universal to all people, sometimes can come into conflict with desired positive rights. And I think this is what kind of gets at the heart of the question of, is the declaration canceled? Because I think a lot of people today, especially in wealthy Western democracies, have these lofty goals, these positive rights ambitions that are often at odds, contrary to the natural rights, the the natural liberty that positive rights in the first place are trying to support. So, you know, you two are lawyers. You've seen in your day-to-day how there are people who are always clamoring for, I have a right to this, I have a right to that. What, what's one of the more egregious positive rights that you've seen be claimed that just are outright terrible for natural rights? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I think there'd be a lot to unpack there, honestly. Um, I think one of the biggest errors that people make who start demanding all these rights from government is they actually forget the core 
of natural rights, which means government isn't the one that grants them to you. And so they forget that when you forget the underlying principle, which a lot of uh, nations around the world also don't have the view that those rights are inherent in you as a human being, as, as a lot of the founders wrote, they come from nature's God. So these are not something that a government can grant you. A government can only recognize the rights that you already have. And so I think when people get away from that, they just saying, well, rights and the government gives them to me, not the government protects someone else from taking them from me, but the government is actually the source of my rights. And that's when you'll see the, all the like popular things to say, healthcare is a right, education is a right. Um, and just because something isn't a right doesn't mean you can't have it. I mean, we all think people should have access to healthcare and access to education, but there is a distinction between something you can have and you can build a system for and something that you have an absolute right from government for. I think the easiest way for, for me to relay it is you can't have a right that makes someone else do something. Your rights are inherent in your person. You don't have a right to make any other human being perform an act to give a service. You just don't have the right to force someone to do something. That's, I mean, would be modern day slavery. If you have the right to tell another human being what they have to do for you, that's you enslaving that human. And that is just fundamentally antithetical to the idea of natural rights. And I think that's where a lot, I mean, what Christy's talking about is dead on. That's where a lot of the misunderstanding of the declaration comes from. The problem is people want more and more positive rights in order to give them more rights. But what they don't realize is that the more and more positive law you have, the less rights you have. And oftentimes it's better winding back rather than pushing forward in order to make it to where people can exercise their rights. There's a, I was watching Hamilton last week uh, on Disney so Plus. I, I saw it for the first time. It's so good. Grant, I don't particularly care for Hamilton as a founding father, but the show is so damn good. I've been listening to the, the King song, You'll Be Back, like on repeat over and over. It's so, so yeah. freaking witty. I, uh, I thoroughly love that Lafayette is now in the national conversation because a lot of people don't count him as a founder and me being the awkward, obscure uh, lover of the founding that I am, uh, Marquise de Lafayette is one of the greatest uh, founders in our history and helped, well, helped marshal our country through a revolution and successful reorganization, tried to help another country through their revolution and maybe not quite so successful reorganization. But I do love that, that now we're talking about some of these more obscure historical figures and any time that, you know, you're putting history in front of people. And I think Hamilton is somewhat fair in exposing goods and bads about a lot of the, the gentlemen from the founding generation. But at one point, uh, Angela Schuyler's talking about the, the, the actress that plays her, I don't recall her name, is talking about the Declaration of Independence. And she's talking about the words that Jefferson wrote and said, you know, all men are created equal. And when I have a moment to speak with him, I'll get him to add women. And it's a clever punchline. The audience laughs. I laugh. And then I immediately go, that misses the whole point of the Declaration of Independence. They use the word men because it's the neuter 
plural in English. That's because just, English has a has no neutral stance. It's just a yeah an odd odd language. We're not going to bring back thou and thee. That's just unless we want to start bringing those back. Then so that's why he uses the word men. The whole point behind it is that every human being born that is a human, if you're a human, you have these rights. They are unalienable from you as a human being. Um, And this idea that you need government to give you more and more is the exact opposite. You have everything. Government has to take away in order to do anything. Mm. And and I'll, just for fun, I'll push back on one thing you said. Um, I do think a big misconception today is that those human rights only attach when we're born. Mm. And I do think if if you go to the actual words of the declaration where it says all men are created equal, there's uh, actually a lot of interesting scholarship surrounding what that phrase meant with some even modern scholars and a bunch of fun law review articles. And they relate the origins of that phrase in the Declaration of Independence to the creation of the 14th Amendment, which obviously happened you know, over 100 years later. But the, when the 14th Amendment was written, it recognized the original meaning of the Declaration that that right was inherent at, in you as soon as your human life came into existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I realize that's not recognized by everyone in the law today. One of my personal crusades is that it will be one day, but that is, that's my favorite phrase in the declaration is that all men are created equal. I think if they meant born, they would have said it. No, that's interesting. I hadn't even considered that, that aspect because I, I always stressed to my kids that, the, no word in the Declaration or Constitution was chosen by mistake. Sometimes it was chosen deliberately to be vague, but none of them were chosen by mistake, especially the Declaration. And I hadn't considered that. I got to think more about that. Created, not born equal. That's yeah, certainly going to bring up some. <laughs> that's certainly going to bring it. Bring up some more interesting discussions we three have. Because for those for those of you who don't know us personally, this whole show kind of started out as a. Um, conversation between a high-ranking member of the Republican Party, myself a more libertarian, conservatarian-esque individual, and our dear token anarcho-capitalist friend, Cody. (laughs) And that we all three realize that we all love liberty. We all love this idea of freedom. But we all have these certain points where we're like, okay, that's just insane. Or you're a monster for thinking that. And I think that idea created not born equal might be one of those things that I think pops up later for us. But for, for agreement, I think we all understand the declarations understanding of natural rights that were, whether it's born or created being human, you got them, you got these things. And that I I love how you said it, Cody, in order for the government to do anything, whether it be to give or whatever, in order to do anything, it must first take. It has no inherent creative abilities. But there is something I want to kind of take this idea and bring it back earlier. Um, this is in the, the, declar- uh, the, the commission's report. This is in most textbook te- uh, teachings that natural rights exist before the political body, before government right? That they're natural. But there's a question that I sometimes like to entertain. I know I get a lot from other people. Isn't government natural? No, humans are inherently social creatures. They're going to gravitate towards society. Is government not natural by default? Or is there a difference between society and government 
And if there is, does that difference matter? Because they seem to be so intimately correlated. Like, what's what's that all about? That was actually Anarchy. a really interesting question. Um, <laughs> very interesting. The law school I went to actually kind of tried to address that from the very beginning. Like, what does government mean in its different forms for humans? And, and they argued that because there are different forms of government, beginning with self-government, it, and, and then you can extend it into family government, church government, political government, yes, humans are always operating under some form of government, but if you don't recognize that the very base of it is self-government and your personal responsibility and accountability um, to God, then where does that leave you and why would you be responsible or accountable to any other form of government? And you know, you can make the argument that one leads to another, leads to another, and the mistake is when all these different forms of government get out of their own jurisdiction and a political government tries to tell you how to manage your religion. And the, I don't know, in, I mean, you can see cults, religious cults that try and tell you how to manage every aspect of your self-government. So when any type of government that maybe have begun from a natural standpoint steps outside of its box, then that's where natural rights are damaged. You know, when I'm teaching uh, the origins of the state, right? You know, we go over the divine right of kings, we go over the social contract, the force theory. Well, one theory is like the evolutionary theory, that the, that the modern state was developed over an evolutionary period of a social evolutionary period, you know, coming from uh, the city, which comes from villages and it comes from tribes and bands and from family. But the evolutionary theory usually does start from the family unit, the family organization. That idea that the individual is the first government of the individual, that's an interesting idea that I have not heard of before. The individual unto itself is its own government. So I think I, I would disagree happy, Cody. slightly. Well, actually, I'm going to disagree. No. Because I don't think we should use the word government to describe that. Um, Government is natural in the sense that uh, a coffee cup is natural, since I have one sitting in front of me. And I don't mean that to be snarky, even though it sounds like it is. <laughs> it's created out of natural elements. Humans have a natural predilection to create things to make our lives easier and simpler and to organize. You know, a coffee cup developed of natural elements created in such a way to contain a liquid so that I don't have to stand near the coffee pot and funnel it directly into my mouth for the rest of the day. Although it seems like I do sometimes. Um, I, I wouldn't self-government, we're using the word out of convenience, but the distinction for me there is that government is something that you've signed on to allow it to use force against you. And that's the biggest thing. And I think humans' initial natural element is towards community and to groups. But in a community, you haven't necessarily agreed to allow other community members to enforce their will against you. You haven't had to give anything up always. Um, and I think that there's an important distinction there. Now, that naturally moves into a form of government because eventually there become societal norms there's an idea of, well, if I violate somebody else's rights, then they can come and retributively violate mine in a sense. So it does develop into a, a loose government in that sense. But I think that there is a key difference between your own individual uh, shepherding of your life and a government where you've given up something to give it power to use its force against you. And that's the ultimate structure of government is I have X, Y, and Z. 
I'm going to give government X so that if I do something wrong, government can throw X back in my face. That's yeah, very that's an interesting yeah. perspective. I, I like thinking about the, the differences that may, may arise considering it that way. Because I mean, yeah, I think the idea of self-government stems a lot from, from free will. And I think some people would choose, I guess, if you are the final say of everything in your own life, which is a choice you, people can make, then I guess there really is then no outside force, at least that you recognize, that is <laughs> governing your life. And then for a lot of people, though, I think who believe in, believe in God, then for them, self-government would be under the dictates of a higher power <laughs> that they recognize. And so therefore setting up almost a government structure, but to your point, Cody, one that they recognize and accepted. Well, you, in, in that religious theory, right, you haven't given up anything. You, you don't give up rights to God. God's given you a certain amount of rights and those are what you have. So you haven't given a sovereign power to exercise one of your human natural rights back against you. And I think that there is a, an important distinction there. And uh, being the resident anarchist, minarchist, <laughs> I'm probably a minarchist. I You're just like to have, anarchist. I like to have anarchist tendencies just to shift the window of conversation, like talking <laughs> about whether your own daily life is self-government <laughs> or personal of shepherding. <laughs> I actually so, have a question for both of you guys, Stan mm -hmm. and Cody. What do you guys think about, one thing I've been hearing a lot in the news is the current protests, um, a lot of them BLM protests, some of them Antifa. Uh, well, you know, I'd say most of them Antifa right now, they've progressed to that. But a lot of people are saying, well, what's your objection to them if you object? because isn't this just like the Boston Tea Party, that kind of the Declaration of Independence and the revolution stemmed out of? I, I certainly have my own thoughts, but I'm very interested in what you guys think. Do you think these protests resemble the Boston Tea Party? Do they relate to the American Revolution or not? So I guess if we look at the Boston Tea Party, you know, for what it is, one of the things that I've recently learned that I do stress uh, during my um, first units in government is, you know, we, we take a look at something like the T Act, right? One of the one of the laws that Parliament passed that we protested. You look at the T Act; it actually lowered taxes on the colonies. It lowered the tax on tea. So when people say we protest high taxes, I'm like, no, no, we didn't. We we were protesting a government that passed a tax period without our consent. And so the idea of consent is built into the the generational fiber of the country that without consent, we don't get, we don't do this without, unless we say so, we don't get to do that. And that's the Cody's point about how uh, we have to submit to it. We have to voluntarily say, yeah, we accept the laws that you will pass down. And if we don't, then we're out. That's the basis. That's the basic social contract. The current protests I suppose if we're looking at it from just a pure um, police brutality perspective, which is obviously not, the protests are far more intricate and complex than that. But if we're just looking at the police brutality one, you do see some elements of the Boston Tea Party in that. Uh, you know, I, I've only been a libertarian for, oh, I got to say five years or so. So I've, I've recently jumped onto this. But 
But when I do say we, as in just ever moving in the right direction, we're we're getting there, Cody. <laughs> we're getting there, right? I used to be I used to be a freedom loving, almost like a monarchist. I, want, I just I wanted a philosopher king. Okay, I wanted a philosopher king that just left everyone the hell alone. But libertarians forever have been talking about how the use of the police against certain classes of individuals is going to become a problem and not just a, a social order problem. It becomes a problem because <laughs> the state being founded on the energy of force, on coercion, the police being agents of that state, no matter how noble and good the police are, are going to be acting with force. And the force that they are using, the laws that they are applying are often against people against their consent. And that's not to say that, you know, oh, so if I disagree with the law, I can just dissent and, hey, I'm, uh, I'm free of that. No, that's not how law works. It's the idea that the laws themselves are unjust. The laws themselves are just crooked. And even if the laws don't even look crooked on the outset, this is, and this is the, you know, we, we can have a whole show on systemic racism, this whole thing, is that some laws, no matter how well-intentioned and well-structured, inherently are going to be are, are going to diminish the rights and value of other human beings and that's what the protest that's the whole thing when the police are supporting that legal structure they're going to protest saying we didn't we didn't agree to this kind of uh, subtle but insidious discrimination we, we're not going to stand for it so you know it's it the parallels to the Boston Tea Party may feel stretched to some, but I definitely see that there is an element of a freedom strain within these. Now, is that the end of the story? I don't think so. And we can have that conversation here a little bit. But Cody, what do you think? Yeah. And so for me, I mean, there's obviously a distinction that some people are drawing right between protests and the riots. Um, obviously, I don't think anybody, any of us would disagree with the protests. The idea behind that, just you know, exercising your First Amendment protected rights, Notice First Amendment protected rights because um, you have the natural right to speech. <laughs> Exercising your First Amendment protected rights uh, is always a good thing and, and almost always a good thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll condition that just in case somebody comes up with something clever in like three years when they're listening to this. Um, so I think we're, we're all pretty much on board with that. The question is, right, destruction of property. And that's when everybody starts to get nervous. And that's when you start drawing the parallels to the Boston Tea Party. Now, I think that there is a really important distinction of destroying somebody's individual property or small business, things like that, things that people have worked for in order to, to provide for their families and contribute to their communities. That's bad. Um, being able to burn down a, a family's small convenience store is a net negative. I mean, that's just going to harm everybody. What about you know, the government property or property of the king. Um, and that's where it gets more problematic in Stanton. I think I would agree with you in a, in a lot of context. Now, obviously I'm not endorsing people going out and burning down government property or destroying government property. That's illegal. Um, but there are certain measures of similarities to the Tea Party, and I think what I'd like to pick up on specifically, Stanton, is when you're talking about the different laws that are 
may be unfair to certain individuals. What I think the key there is, is that it's not the law that's unfair to individuals. It's sometimes that it's enforced, enforced only against certain individuals. Um, being a gun lawyer, one of the contexts of this is, is gun control laws, right? Gun control laws aren't enforced in really fancy, rich suburbs. You don't have cops walking around, pulling people over randomly to see if they have a gun in the car. It just doesn't happen. Where it is enforced is in New York where they can do stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. And then you can get put into a court merely for possessing an illegal firearm. You haven't broken any other law other than possessing that arm. You haven't done anything actively to another human being necessarily, but you can just be prosecuted for having a piece of property on you. And those people generally in the New York firearms court, it's overwhelmingly young black males, overwhelmingly. And they're also overwhelmingly non felons. So it's the fact that a lot of these laws are getting enforced. So um, I think we're on the anniversary of the Eric Garner um, killing. And that's a perfect example, right? I mean, he was stopped for selling loose cigarettes. And the problem was the reason why you can't sell loose cigarettes is because they're not taxed. Jesus, That's the problem. So if you buy a pack of cigarettes, there's one tax, but then when you go and try and sell Lucy's, you're not paying your dues to the state for selling an individual cigarette. So that's one of the problems. They they claim it's a health problem. When you've passed so many laws, what you've done is given law enforcement the ability to enforce all of those laws. So I think that there is a certain pushback of this it's kind of this no taxation without representation line. But what, what I think a lot of people are starting to realize is, oh, they've been passing laws that they say are good for us all this time, but then they use them against us when they want to. And that's the big problem is when you give government, the, the government is force, right? Cops are force. That's what they are. Um, you're saying that this happens or I, you can kill me or you can lock me up. You can deprive me of my freedom or my life. And that's the big problem here is that we're starting to realize there are so many laws in the books. There are so many enforcement actions and there's such a difficulty holding everybody accountable that now there's a situation where there's government action without representation in a sense. Yeah, no, those are really interesting answers. I appreciate you both analyzing that very deeply. Um, I think one question I have, and I guess, honestly, I'm probably talking more about the rioters and people burning down property rather than the protesters, because I do think it's unquestionably American to protest peacefully. But uh, the Boston Tea Party analogy has been drawn with the rioters and destruction of property. And to me, I worry that it goes more into like resembling the French Revolution (laughs) than the American Revolution, where just the disregard for human life and individual property became so intertwined with what they wanted to claim was destruction of government property. And once you say you're okay with destruction, it's very difficult if you don't have hardcore principles to say, here's the line on destruction and we will not go farther. And you saw that in the French Revolution, it completely disintegrated Mm. into everyone is going to be the target of our anger. Everyone is going to be the target of breaking down this system. And I mean, and I just don't think in the modern world, destruction of even government property sends the same message that throwing tea overboard, um, you know, in Boston did, particularly when you consider that the Americans back then literally were not even allowed to participate in the political system. 
the king shut out the legislative branch and the judicial branch in England, he was the monarch. He, he was the end-all be-all. And so the colonists could do nothing, literally, to influence that political system. And I think in America today, I entirely agree. We have way too many laws, way too much force the government can unequally in, apply to people. But there are still answers on how we can advocate for change in the political system. So to just run, you know, some of these people who are doing this have not even attempted to participate in the political system. And I think that's very apparent. Yeah, some of it, right, there is representation, right, in a sense. Um, we do have a representative republic where, you know, representative democracy, um, there are individuals, there, there are ways to redress. I feel like a lot of it, though, is that a lot of attempts at fixing a problem have been met with more law. And so individuals have been fighting against some of this like systemic inequality for a long time. And what happens is what they're advocating for is more law, more government protection. The problem is that's the wrong way to look at it. You need less. You don't need more laws in order to fix this problem. You need less things that the government can do against you so that you aren't dependent on you know, a police force in order to come in and do things because you should be able to exercise your own natural rights. There's also a significant problem of the government owning way too much property these days, <laughs> but that definitely is a topic for another day. There, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take all this. I'm going to try and wrap this up because I think we're getting close to our end time. But Chrissy, you mentioned the French Revolution, and I think this is the perfect parallel to draw. The American Revolution was built on life, liberty, property, okay? The, the original Lockean uh, triumvirate, okay? With a little twist, pursuit of happiness. But that idea, those ideas, Locke's philosophy, the Enlightenment, was kind of built into the American mentality for generations at that point, right? At least since the 1600s. So we'd already grew, we, we, we grew up with it, so to speak. And when you look at the French Revolution, the ideas of that kind of personal autonomy just wasn't built in yet. They had lived under arguably one of the last absolute monarchs at the time, the, the French king. They didn't have any notion of how to develop themselves. That's not to say that the natural rights aren't due to them. Of course they're due to them. It's the question of how do they go about doing that? And where we emphasize life, liberty, property, they were all about liberty, equality, fraternity. Why? Something about the French culture demanded it. But even so, those three ideas are more or less contradictory to each other. When we can dive into that later, I think that's, I think that's a really important idea. But the French totally missed the mark on natural rights. They totally missed the mark. They were so focused on liberty from the king, on equality between the high priestly class and the peasants, between fraternity of all men. They were so focused on that that they missed the point that a society that is better is a society that is left alone. A government that doesn't enforce fraternity, a government that doesn't enforce equality, but a government that lets you be free with your life and with your property. And that's what the French miss. And I think you might have a point. That might be what the protesters are missing, that they are so focused on the oppression of their, uh, of their government, so to speak, 
right? Just as the French were so obsessed, uh, 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 so focused on their governance oppression that they miss what's going on. Instead of just tearing down the Leviathan and replacing it with freedom, they want to tear down the Leviathan and put their own Leviathan in place. And that might very well be what the protesters are missing. Not to say that their protest and the cause is, is unworthy. It is very worthy. It's, does it need context? Does it need a, a stronger intellectual foundation? Does it need a better implementation? And quite frankly, uh, quite frankly, I think that could easily be our next episode's discussion. Do you guys want to wrap it up with some final thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, just going on the French Revolution... Um, so I think what sparked this all off, um, obviously we were all in agreement with the video that we saw about George Floyd. We all thought it was horrendous. And then a lot of us in the Liberty movement thought we might see some real change coming out of this. We might see things like qualified immunity, which is definitely a full episode on its own, go away or get reined in. And for me, it was the moment that I saw people start erecting guillotines uh, in front of certain houses that I immediately went, oh no, we're going to take the complete wrong lesson from this. We're going to come out of this in the wrong direction. We're not going to think about cutting the Leviathan up and separating it and getting rid of it. What we're going to end up doing is making a bigger Leviathan and saying, oh, but once our person is at the head, then everything will be better. And I think that's the fundamental problem and misunderstanding here is that the answer isn't putting the right person in charge because you're never going to find the right person. And there's no one person in charge of anything anymore. The answer is we need to rein in the Leviathan that is government. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could say that better. <laughs> I think that's that's right on. And I mean, 2020 has been such the year of <laughs> unpredictable everything across America. And so I think there's a lot of people that are going to say, where are we going to come out of 2020? What are the lessons we're going to take out of it? And what can we do to actually make this nation a better place that stays true to the foundations, not erects a system that will be toppled even easier because it's... It, just ready to crumble when it when when you have a misunderstanding of power and authority and who's at fault and what equality actually means. So that's I think why how we started this the Declaration of Independence really matters in today's conversation. We don't know where we came from. It's very hard to hard to be able to paint the right path forward. And with that, I think that kind of wraps up this discussion. We could go on and on and on and on about the Declaration <laughs> about our favorite grievance against the king. We can we can no we can go forever, but. I think it's right. The well, the right answer is erecting a m multiple new offices. I mean, that's objectively the right, the best reasons. We just need more, <laughs> we need more alphabet agencies. <laughs> the declaration is more than a protest document of political maneuverability and reverence. It is a declaration that natural rights are inherent to all human beings, and that those natural rights sometimes stand opposed to positive government rights. And that any protest based in the idea of liberty or oppression needs to keep in mind natural rights before they consider increasing the size of the Leviathan government. Folks, this was an amazing first episode. I particularly like this. Um, hopefully next time we have a discussion topic 
in which we get to showcase our disagreements, in which we can see the multiple myriad ideas of liberty. But with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. We should be back next month or so, probably the next next few weeks. Thank you for listening to Self-Evident and Forgotten Conversations on Truths of Liberty and Odd Opinions. We'll see you next time.